You know, one of the uh, special events that, that I enjoyed and look back upon as a young adult was that I was a- able to attend two services at the Billy Graham Crusade that was held in Empire Stadium in Vancouver. That was way back in uh, 1965. And during uh, one of the services, I believe it was the afternoon, uh, Sunday afternoon service, Graham introduced a uh, lady that was going to sing a solo. And uh, she was a pastor's wife in Vancouver, but she had been part of his entourage when he was in Bible school in Florida. And she sang in a trio, and uh, they would go with him in for some of his street preaching. (laughs) Imagine those years where he was developing into a fine preacher, and and he mentioned how that they would uh, get some uh, abuse. Uh, People would throw eggs at him, that type of thing. (laughs) And so she had been part of that. And uh, then I heard later from a friend that uh, he had shown up at her house and just announced to her that, you know, I want you to sing at uh, this service. And so she did. And the song that she sang beautifully was the one written by William E. Booth Cliborne, and it's Down From His Glory. You're probably familiar with it. Down From His Glory, ever-living story. My God and Savior came, and Jesus was his name. Born in a manger to his own a stranger, a man of sorrows, tears, and agony. Oh, how I love him, how I adore him, my breath, my sunshine, my all in all. The great creator became my savior, and all God's fullness dwelleth in him. That song goes to that Italian tune, O Soli Mio. Um, Familiar to some of you, that song? No, some of us. I would try it, but I don't want to spoil the song. But, um, you know, I don't know to what extent that that uh, song was based on this portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning. It may have been, but certainly it follows a parallel track. And uh, this section in Philippians chapter 2 is often considered to be an early Christian hymn that was in honor of Christ whether it's a hymn or just a very effective narrative, either way, it tells about the incarnation and uh, the spectrum almost, you know, all the way from him being born as a man and then dying on the cross and being exalted. And so we're going to, we're going to read that together at this time. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Let's stand together as we say these wonderful words together. Therefore, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. You may be seated. Wonderful hymn or narrative about Christ, right from the where he was to the lowest to the highest. But why is the hymn, why is it included here? Is it mainly to teach us about the details of the Incarnation so we would better understand the Trinity? Apparently, that's not Paul's main concern. But rather, he is concerned how we are to live. Uh, Writing to the congregation at Philippi, it would seem that they need to be instructed how to better relate to one another. That they're not really getting along as well as he would desire. And, uh, you know, it's not clear to me whether he is just sort of dealing with issues just the way life is in congregations or whether he has special concern for this particular uh, congregation. But he is challenging if there be a spirit of rivalry or conceit, self-centeredness, lack of harmony. (laughs) And like I say, I think it's a reality that needs to be highlined in every congregation. But Paul wants them to get it together, to relate to one another in a spirit of love and humility, unselfishness, serving one another. And so he calls for Uh, These qualities needed for that in the first four verses. And then in verse 5 and following, he gives the ultimate argument. And that is the example of Jesus Christ. As he says there in a very well-known verse to all of us, I'm sure in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Or many of us are more familiar with, in our memories, with the King James Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so what we have here is a call for togetherness. And it's going to happen through humility. Harmony through humility. And a humility that is patterned after Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk under these two simple headings this morning. The need for harmony and then the necessity of humility if you're going to have the harmony. 
but the need for harmony. And he uh, addresses that back in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, you know, uh, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one in the faith. And then here in verse uh, 1 and 2, he gets into that very specifically. In verse 1, he mentions certain qualities that he assumes are already there. And on the basis of those, uh, go further, you know. He's assuming that there's encouragement, that there's something about the same love, and uh, that they have compassion. And uh, let's see, what else? Um, common sharing in the Spirit and tenderness. And then he says, make my joy complete. I want you to, you know, that's great. I want you to complete my joy. And then he gets into this harmony, having the same mind, the same love, being a full accord of one spirit. Now, when he talks about having the same mind, I don't believe for a minute that that means that everybody's to have the very same opinion about everything. Or that... Uh, Christians in a given congregation are to be like cookie-cutter, you know, sameness. Because the expression isn't just about the one mind as in an intellectual sense, okay? But the whole inner person, a oneness, a togetherness, one in love, one in spirit, one in purpose, about the things that really matter, in the sense of priorities, in the sense of what they need to be, I like the word harmony because that word suggests unity without uniformity. And uh, those of us who are into music, we understand the difference between uh, uh, one person singing a solo or three or four people singing in harmony. And uh, where you have harmony, you have different notes coming together with a beautiful sound. And I believe that's a good analogy of the way it should be in a congregation. We're different. Different personalities. Different opinions. And yet a togetherness in Christ and a togetherness in purpose and a togetherness in wanting to grow in Christ. I suggest a good analogy would be a household of good, solid togetherness. Healthy household with love and support and yet many differences. Last week I referred to some of the differences within our household, different coloring, how that we were blue-eyed blonde, blue-eyed blonde, blue-eyed blonde, and finally we got a child with brown eyes and brown hair. And uh, yeah, we look different. And uh, I'll tell you something, we have three children, one of each, okay? They're all different. And their personalities are different. And I know, as adults, their political opinions are different. And they're, uh, they're church Christians, they're committed Christians, and, but they practice a different form of Christianity. They wouldn't kind of look at the call of God in the very same way. And so I believe it should be that way in a healthy congregation. In fact, I suggest the congregation is healthier where there's room for diversity 
And I mean, I say that almost as if it's, you know, not, not a given, but it's a given, okay? Just take it, for, take it as an absolute. If there's some room for diversity, it means a healthier group of people where we can disagree on some things. And yet, let there be harmony. But without basic harmony, you're not going to fulfill any goal or vision as a church. We covered that at the last board meeting. Without unity, we're not going anywhere. And that may very well come up in a serious way before too long as we have to, what's the next chapter in the life of the church? And we're going to take time before we decide so that people can really come together. But there's something even more important about harmony. And that is the very meaning and purpose of the gospel. Because it is God's answer to the sin problem. And sin does what? Separates. Sin alienates. It alienates nations and groups and individuals. But the gospel deals with sin and brings together, reconciles. And when there is disharmony, you have a contradiction of the very gospel which the church stands for. But when you have a diverse group of people in a church that are in harmony, you have a demonstration, a window of the gospel. And again, there's a sense in which the greater the diversity the more, the better, the stronger the demonstration of the gospel. You know, one of the strengths about our church here is our ethnic diversity. I think it's wonderful that we have four or five different African nations represented. We have Haitians, we have Norwegians, Ukrainians, Filipinos. Uh, one church today that I think really reflects this uh, wonderfully uh, McLaurin Memorial Baptist Church there on 111th and 51st and I think I, I heard something to the effect that they have like 22 or 27 different ethnic groups and they demonstrate that on that special uh, day we have in Edmonton to celebrate our diversity uh, what's it called I don't remember heritage, heritage yes and so they come dressed accordingly Maybe we should do that. Hey, let's do that. Do that. If you remember, put on something from your native heritage. <laughs> well, harmony. Answer. Answer to sin is the gospel. Um, now, if you're going to have that, when you have harmony, it's going to be because there's humility in the congregation. And there's so much about that in this passage. The necessary humility. And as he begins talking about humility here, let's, let's look at it this way. You could say in structuring it, first of all, it's the things that contradict it. Okay? Things to say no to. Say no to, uh, verse 3, selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish 
ambition. And we all know what ambition is in our contemporary vocabulary. Ambition is a positive thing. It's a good thing. But the meaning here is a bit different. In fact, this was one word together. Uh, selfish ambition went together. One word. And uh, the idea was that of a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. It was used of party squabbles or the jockeying for position. It's rivalry, serving with selfish motives to advance oneself. And Paul here is warning the congregation that they will not be motivated by rivalry or jockeying for prestige, prestigion or prestige or playing the game of one-upmanship. Um, exactly what the disciples were into when they quibbled about who was the greatest and uh, two of them asking Jesus for the place of prominence in his kingdom. Selfish ambition. And then he says, vain conceit. And uh, what is it? Well, vain or empty glory. It's personal vanity. Uh, delusion. Vain, empty. And uh, that elephant is, or <laughs> element is uh, often, it could be the elephant in the room, often, I'm sure. But this element is often in the pride equation. Delusion. Flattering yourself. There's a silly little story that really makes the point. And it's about the woodpecker that was hammering away at a tree trunk. And suddenly a bolt of lightning struck the tree and split it from top to bottom. And the woodpecker flew away and looked back and said to himself, Wow! Look at what I did. That's part of pride. Sets itself up high. But it's a delusion. For the position, the dignity, the posture assumed does not measure up to reality. And someone has said that the emptier the head, the louder the boast. May very well be true. But... How does that affect relationships? What's the, what's the connecting point here? I think we understand that. When people set themselves up as a little higher, it's hard to relate to them. Well, well, look at it this way. You see, if I set myself up on a high level, you know, I bring myself up to my uh, six foot nine, thinking that's where I really am, how am I going to look at you? You know, there's only one way to look at you. I'm going to look down at you. Does that interfere with harmony? I think so. I think so. Well, then he goes on to talk. He's talking here about humility, and we're going to look at the positive aspect. But first of all, uh, to mention that humility was not really a virtue in that culture, in the pagan world. Humility conveyed the idea of being base, unfit, shabby, of no account. But the Bible lifted this quality because God chooses the small, the unimportant for his plans. And he saves the lowly and the humble. What is humility? Well, just as pride is a delusion, humility is a recognition of reality. In humility comes the recognition that I really am lowly, 
And if I'm humble, then I accept my lowly estate or state. And I don't need to pretend, but I can rather accept my inadequacy and my dependence on the Lord. And it's okay. It's okay to be who God has made me to be. That would be humility. Well, how does it relate to harmony? Also in humility then, he says, value others. In humility, value others above yourself. Or other translations, count others as more significant. Or regard others as better than yourself. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you have to kind of fib to yourself? I mean, after all, doesn't God make us all equally important? Can I honestly say that this person is more important than me? Uh, What does it really mean here? I believe it means that we are called to choose to locate ourselves as less significant than the other. It's a choice. I can take that posture. I can take that position. I can't make myself humble, but I can choose to be second to you. And I think that's what he's calling for here. I mentioned Billy Graham at the beginning, and I remember uh, reading in one of the biographies at one time where uh, some of the colleagues and those who were with him a lot, they were trying to think, can I remember ever uh, him going through the door before me? You know, it's almost like Graham was universally known to be a humble person and they couldn't think of an occasion where he had walked through a door before them. But that can be a stance that we take, a choice that we make. This other person is more important, as far as I'm concerned. A choice. Give priority to others. Roman says that, that we are to honor others. And again, it's a choice. Honor others above ourselves. Count the other person more significant than yourself. And then the second one here is look outward to the interests of others, looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I've been emphasizing that as a church we should be looking outward into our neighborhood and also regard highly other, other churches. I may or may not have mentioned that, but that's part of it too. But here it's about, here it's within the congregation that you are to look out not for your own interests only, but look out for the interests of others. Watch for, pay attention, learn to listen, learn to observe. And again, that would be part of humility. Humility is able to look away from self and to look to others. I know I've shared this before, but it's well worth remembering that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Not thinking that I'm nobody. That wouldn't be true to reality. But it's not, it's not the issue. But rather thinking of myself less. Looking outward, thinking of other person. Somebody by the name of Cornwell West uh, said that humility means two things. One, a capacity for self-criticism. And you see, that goes along with being truthful, truthful about self. 
If I'm truthful about me, then of course I need some <laughs> criticism against me. And he says the second feature is allowing others to shine, affirming others, empowering and enabling others. A pastor by the name of David Hansen, writing in leadership some years ago, tells us, quote, an elderly lady stuffed a note into my hand as she greeted me in line after church. She winked at me. Five years later, serving a different church, I have that note taped to the window in front of my office desk. It reads, there is no limit to the good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. How about that, Ed? How about that, Lloyd? How about that, Andrew? No limit to the influence we might have if we don't care who gets the credit. To say that humility is helpful to harmony would surely be an understatement. Someone has said it's really the linchpin that guarantees the success of the Christian community. Maybe it's an, maybe it's an exaggeration, but hardly the linchpin. Looking at others is more significant. Looking away from self to the needs and the interests of others. And then here's the third argument. Looking to Jesus who is the model of all of this. Let this attitude, verse 5, let this attitude, this mindset, this mind be in you. This, this way of thinking be in you that was also in Christ. And then he goes into this hymn, this narrative that we've been quoting, uh, talking about beginning at the very beginning, who existed in prehistory was in the very former nature of God. Uh, along with the Father, his essential nature was God. God eternally existing as one in three persons. John Stott provides a summary statement of the many ways that Jesus claimed to be God. And he really did. Read the Gospel of John especially, and you see that how in many different ways he made that claim. He taught that to know him was to know God. To see him was to see God. To receive him was to receive God. To hate him was to hate God. And to honor him was to honor God. <clears throat> See, we worship Jesus Christ without any fear of being guilty of idolatry. Isn't that right? There's no other entity that we can worship on earth that was on earth and yet be free of idolatry. But his argument here is that this is who he was and yet his mindset... He did not grasp things for himself. He did not use the fact he was God for his own advantage. He didn't consider that equality with God should mean grasping and holding on to it for his own advantage. Uh, but rather he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Poured himself out for others. Putting himself at their disposal for their good. Set aside his rights did not insist on his own way. And how so? Well, he took on the very form of a servant, it says. And uh, without ceasing to be God in his essential nature, he added to himself human nature 
with its limitations. It became one of us. But as he entered the stream of human life, he did so as a person without advantage, without rights or privileges, for the purpose of serving all of us. He goes on to say he humbled himself, even to the point of being obedient. Obedient all the way to that disgraceful and torturous death by crucifixion. This text makes a very significant contribution to the whole study of this mystery, the mystery of the Trinity. Deep theology here, and yet, as much as that is there, Paul brings it in especially to challenge, to persuade the members of the congregation to relate to one another in a way that was patterned in this way by Jesus Christ. Arguing for their harmony, their humility, their being other-centered, relating to one another with Christ-like humility. And so how, in summary, would our humility be patterned after Jesus? Well, a humility that's expressed by giving up rights and preferences for the sake of the others. A humility expressed in having a servant attitude and then practically serving one another. A humility that is shown by not having to be in control or controlling others, but rather, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. Think of that. We don't have to do it my way. What is, what is your wish? And so I ask practically, does that mean there's no leadership, that no one is in charge, that no one can give direction? doesn't mean that at all, but it means that that servant attitude has to be foremost the characteristic of leaders. Leading, but in a submissive spirit. And that is to be all around in the congregation. Harmony through humility with the mindset, the posture patterned by Jesus himself. You know, obviously a very good question that we can all ask ourselves in the prayer closet. Where is the pride in me? thirst for control or power, thirst for one-upmanship, maybe look de- looking down on others, maybe? Good question. And yet maybe, maybe, practically, an even better question might be, how can I, how can I count the Toms and the Dicks and the Marys in my life? How can I relate to them as more significant than me? See, it's to be practical. There's a place for being silent, uh, an important place for being silent, but you know we can get so introspective. Maybe by trying to work it out out there on the ground where we have to connect and rub shoulders with others, maybe that's even better. How can I be humble in my relationship to this person and that person and that person? It has to be worked out in our relationships one with another. All this in such contrast 
to the common ways of the world. Some time ago, J.P. J.B. Phillips altered the Beatitudes to kind of graphically describe what so often is going on in the world. Happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are they who complain, for they get their own way in the end. Happy are the blessé, for they never worry about their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable men of the world, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. Well, you could describe the way of the world in many different ways. But in God's kingdom... The standards are turned upside down. For in God's economy, it is in weakness that we are strong. It is in dying that we have life. And it's when we are the servant of all that we are really at the top by God's measure. And I want to say, in contrast to the world also, it is when we have that servant and serving attitude as individuals, but as a church that we have the most power. Servanthood, the dynamic of power that follows. Well, let's pray, and then we want to close by especially emphasizing the Lordship of Christ. Father, we know that we need these reminders because we struggle in how to relate to one another and often it's because we're not willing to put the other person first. Not willing to be second to the other person. And so help us both as individuals and as a, as a congregation that increasingly we might be characterized as being like Christ in giving up power so that we can have your kind of influence upon those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.